From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at what's happening at Ascension Health in Milwaukee, where conditions have remained troubling for more than a year. Our annual Games to Gift conversation explores some of the best games of 2023, including some interesting trends. Academic institutions are now taking games more seriously, both in terms of offering programs where they're teaching game design, but also using games in education. Plus, we'll learn some of the best ways to reuse your Christmas tree, including how to create a space for wildlife in your yard. Put it outside, hang bird feeders to attract certain birds, and then watch my tree evolve into a bird sanctuary. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. A lot has changed since we last spoke with journalist Ellie Fishman about the conditions at Ascension Health Hospitals in Milwaukee last year. Unfortunately, not much has changed for patient care. If anything, it may have gotten worse. Fishman wrote about conditions at the health system last year, after the closure of the labor and delivery unit at Ascension St. Francis. Nurses and other healthcare providers described dire conditions at St. Francis and Ascension Columbia St. Mary's, due in large part to understaffing. Fishman wrote about the health system's current issues for this month's Milwaukee Magazine. She joins me now to talk about it. Ellie, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. So we spoke last year about your report on the, uh, you know, frankly, frightening conditions at Ascension. Uh, And it seems like your reporting combined with some follow-up reporting from other news organizations, it it seems like it was really leading to change. Politicians started to jump into action, it seemed. Uh, People were generally recognizing the severity of this issue. But what's actually happened since your revelations last year? Yeah, it was kind of amazing. I, you know, you report these stories somewhat in isolation. For me, the impact of this story was nothing short of phenomenal and the kind of thing you dream about as a reporter. So when the story came out just about a year ago, a lot of things happened pretty quickly. Both my report, which came out in December, and then the Journal Sentinel's own report, which came out about a month later, I believe, led to Senator Baldwin writing an open letter that criticized Ascension and demanding answers from the hospital's CEO. I got to speak with her about that, and she's very invested, of course, in Wisconsinites' healthcare and access to good care and protecting healthcare workers too. Not long after that, they basically cleared out the C-suite at Ascension. The CEO stepped down, several other high-ranking employees also stepped down, and it seemed like the hospital was primed for change. Basically, a year later, what I've discovered in revisiting the story is, unfortunately, not that much has changed. It it did seem like all of these things were happening. Yeah, that everybody was kind of jumping into action. But as your piece explores, not that much has changed. And if anything, it seems like some things have gotten worse. 
Yeah, this was, uh, I have to say, pretty, I guess, disappointing is the word. I mean, I am invested in Columbia St. Mary's and Ascension providing good care to Milwaukeeans. I was once a patient at that hospital, and I know many people who were as well. And there are really amazing providers who want to give their patients good care, but feel like that's just not possible at Ascension. And that's what I heard again and again this time around too. I talked to several nurses and surgical techs and doctors, all of whom expressed their frustrations with winnowing staff, budget cuts, and this same issue of general staff shortages that get in the way of providing safe and good care to patients. Your follow-up piece explores uh, kind of the depth of this understaffing. Really, the upshot is that patients are being neglected. Even the best, most enthusiastic, competent nurses aren't going to be able to navigate these conditions. What are they facing at Ascension today? That's one of the things that's so frustrating about this reporting and these conversations I had with nurses is they really care so deeply about their community and their patients. And one of the reasons they stick around, if not the main reason they stick around, is for their patients to make sure they're receiving care despite an increasingly difficult working environment. One nurse who I spoke to shared an experience that seemed to completely wreck them. Someone had come into the hospital who was older and diabetic and had come in for an amputation around fall of 2022. And in the weeks following his amputation, he developed bed sores. And because they were so understaffed at the hospital, the sores got worse over time, which led to a staph infection, which is an extremely contagious bacteria and that eventually triggered sepsis, which itself is also a very dangerous response to an infection. And about six months later, he was still in the hospital with breathing issues. And it turns out he actually had lung cancer. So, you know, this was a patient who had a lot going on and his body in a lot of ways was seemingly kind of breaking down. But because of the staffing shortages, according to some nurses familiar with the case, he really wasn't getting the attention he probably needed. And he ended up dying in hospice care in the hospital, which, you know, as a healthcare provider, your goal is to get your patients healthy and out of the hospital. And, you know, I heard from folks familiar with that case that it was just completely heartbreaking and indicative of some of these challenges of staffing shortages at Columbia St. Mary. Yeah. Now, something that should really concern all of us is the fact that Ascension isn't always able to handle some very basic medical emergencies, people who are giving birth or having a heart attack. And that's pretty shocking. How did that come to be? Well, I think it comes down to people leaving and leaving because they feel like they're are checks and balances that are not in place at the hospital. And the more people leave, the harder it is to perform something like life-saving care in the case of a heart attack or delivering a baby, which is 
the most common reason somebody enters a hospital, but it's it's also very high risk. Things can go wrong very quickly and it demands a lot of staff ready and available when a woman is in labor. And the fewer people you have, the, the higher risk it is that something that can go wrong in either, either case, you know, giving birth or having a heart attack. You know, one of the things that Ascension has been doing is kind of consolidating their care and making Columbia St. Mary's their tertiary kind of flagship site for high level care, which means that community members who otherwise might have gone to St. Francis, for example, might show up at the hospital and realize that they can't deliver their baby there. Or if they're experiencing signs of a heart attack, they're going to be transferred. They have to wait for an ambulance and they're going to be transferred to another hospital that's as much as 20 minutes away. And of course, in either of these cases, it's very possible that every minute counts. It's an odd thing to be talking about, I think in part because most of us feel like we are paying more and more and more money for medical care. And you would think that, you know, with with more money comes more resources for these hospitals. Not only is that not the case, they don't even seem to be able to give us the same kind of care we once had taken for granted, potentially dying from a heart attack or having huge complications in pregnancy because this hospital system just isn't able to keep up with really basic demands of the community. It seems like there's an ocean between what management is saying has happened since last year and what employees on the ground are saying is happening. Can you dig into that a bit? Because it's very odd. It's a good question. And one that, you know, of course, I have myself. And we posed all of these questions to management and want to make sure that we're getting the full picture of what's happening at the hospital. And, you know, it's important to recognize real changes that have been made and talk about the decision to, for example, consolidate care, which is not exclusive to Ascension. A lot of hospital networks are doing that and give the hospital a chance to respond, which they do in the story. But there are, as you said, there are these like huge gulfs in what I heard from healthcare workers working inside the walls of the hospital and the Ascension administration. And I mean, I can't exactly say why that would be. Maybe it's a disconnect between the administration. You know, it's a ho- it's a really big hospital network that's run out of St. Louis. There's almost 140 hospitals across the Midwest, and there's not as much local presence as there once was, you know, in terms of administrators. So physically, there's a huge distance between administrators and folks who are actually working day to day in Milwaukee hospitals. So that could certainly be part of the reason. I also think things are shifting at the hospital and, you know, I guess what's always, what's always challenging is to figure out is what's happening today indicative of a larger trend or is it a transitional moment in the hopes that soon things will be better like they have to get worse before they get better and i think that's just a question that or that's just an answer that will come with time sure i think one of the quotes that uh sticks with me from the article is uh i believe a nurse saying 
you know, we thought last year was rock bottom, but then we, we realized this year there wasn't a bottom. Yeah, that was pretty brutal. <laughs> that was pretty brutal. I think that actually came from a surgical tech, but when they told me that, I thought, oh man, that's not what I wanted to hear. I mean, I'm invested in having good hospitals for Milwaukeeans. You know, I was hoping to come back to this story and hear that things really were getting better and turning around, but that just doesn't seem to be the case, at least not yet. Now, this isn't really a question for you per se, but uh, as somebody who's been reporting on this story, do you see how we move forward from here? Do you see any solutions to this issue or are we still pretty mired in the problems? Well, the problems aren't exclusive to Ascension, of course. You know, there's still serious labor shortages across the country and especially in healthcare. I mean, the continuing effects of the pandemic cannot be underestimated. I do think one thing that is interesting is politicians are now really paying attention. So not only Senator Baldwin, but State Senator Chris Larson recently proposed a bill that aims to establish a statewide minimum of nurse to patient ratios. And his team reached out to me saying that they, you know, this bill of course, came from talking to nurses directly, but also came as a result of my reporting and the reporting in the journal Sentinel. And, you know, that's a big deal. And I really hope that something like that can take shape, can become law, and and then start to make a difference for nurses who are feeling so overburdened and so overworked. Not only does the Bill propose a nurse to patient, a minimum nurse to patient ratio, but also limit in shift hours, which is a big part of provider burnout, at least according to, you know, people that I've talked to. Sure. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. I, I hope if we have a conversation uh, in another year that uh, maybe the outlook is a little sunnier. Me too. I would really like that. Ellie Fishman is a freelance reporter in Milwaukee. Her article on Ascension Health was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. When the holidays are behind us, you don't have to kick your Christmas tree to the curb. We'll learn some of the best ways to reuse your tree in about 20 minutes. But first, we'll have our annual Games to Gift segment, which will reveal James Lauder's pick for the top game of 2023. The cards and all of the content for this game are steeped in this historical material. There is not a way to play this game without learning something. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Playing games is a year-round hobby for some, but buying and exploring new games is also a great holiday tradition. And games are an everyday endeavor for writer and gaming designer James Lauder. 
Every year, he joins us to share his games to gift list, which includes everything from family games, two-player games, to tabletop games, and games for experienced gamers. So whether you're just curious about getting into gaming, or looking for a gift for the serious gamer in your life, chances are Louder has a suggestion for you. Louder joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski with his picks for the best games to gift this year. We're already closing in on 2023, if you can believe it. But when it comes to the gaming world, what stood out to you the most this past year as far as trends go? Well, the trends are interesting because, you know, one of them is a continuation. The what used to be marginalized hobby games that appeal to a very small audience are moving more and more into the mainstream. So you can go to big box stores and find Ticket to Ride and and Catan and the people listening to this segment, we've been doing it now for 14 years, uh, are very familiar with games now that 14 years they never would have heard of. Um, and that's, that's amazing, it, it, even to the point where next year, the Postal Service just announced they're doing 50th anniversary Dungeons and Dragons commemorative stamps. It's a bit mind boggling to think of, uh, I, I contributed to a game that's now going to have a stamp. You know you've made it when you have a postal stamp. It is kind of amazing to 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 see that recognition uh, where even even five years ago that wouldn't have been possible. Exactly. And a second area of trends and growth that you've seen has to do with academic institutions. Yes, and that's another version of that sort of embrace. Academic institutions are now taking games more seriously, both in terms of offering programs where they're teaching game design, but also using games in education. Uh, That's just getting started locally. There are some schools throughout Wisconsin that are doing it. Not so much in Milwaukee yet, but I think we're heading in that direction. Uh, But places like Central Michigan University, and I know Valparaiso is starting a, a program, Uh, And some of those places even publish their own games, which is astounding to see them actually running these programs and creating content. So when it comes to games that have been out, at least in the past year, we're going to dive into some of your top picks here. We're going to start with family games. And one that stands out to you in particular is called Daybreak. What's this one about? Well, and it's it's a perfect example of, of that sort of educational leaning content in games, and this is a commercial game, but it is a, a co-op game, one to four players, 10 and up, where players control world powers trying to rein in global warming. And over the course of the game, what you're trying to do is uh, decarbonize your economies and your energy systems so that you win, the players cooperatively win, if they lower Uh, the carbon being generated so that the ecosystem, the earth can deal with it. That's the mutual win. And so you play cards to run projects. So you're going to reforest areas and and things like that. Running against that, if the global temperature rises above a certain point, or if your plans have enough human cost that cause crises for people, everybody collectively loses. Uh, And it's got very serious educational weight to it this this is a game that can be played in classrooms however it's it's just a great game design it's being written up in places like uh the journal science 
but it takes a very positive take on it so that as a game, it's entertaining. You can cooperate and work together and have positive impact on this thing that is a very important problem. We have a couple other quick mentions for family games. Do you want to go into those? Sure, yes. If, if you're not looking for the educational weight, there are a couple of great car-based games. Uh, Thunder Road Vendetta is a car combat game. It's a, it's a redo of a game from the 80s uh, with some additional material. And uh, Heat Pedal to the Metal is just a great race game. Uh, there's a new version of Acquire, a classic from the 1960s. It was one of the flagship games in 3M's bookshelf games library in the 60s, which you know, the post-it note people used to do these amazing games in the 60s up in Minnesota. And this was this was one of the best ones. And it's got a new version out now that's uh, it's very entertaining. And really, there's no version of this game that isn't a win. And then there's a trading card game, uh, Disney Lorcana. It's a little hard to get right now. There's there's supply problems with this, but it's a it's a trading card game using the Disney animated IP, and it's very accessible for families. But because it's a trading card game, it also sort of leans into hobby games. And next up, we do have hobby games, and these are the ones that are a little more involved. They take a bit of time for dedicated play, and your top pick in this category is a familiar one that we've talked about some iteration of this, Ticket to Ride Legacy Legends of the West. Yes, and and Ticket to Ride in and of itself is a very accessible family game. Uh, players tenant up, It's you, you claim train routes uh, across maps of different parts of the world. Uh, what the legacy version of this game does is it's late 19th century. You're trying to create your railroad, build it as a company. Starting on the East Coast, you're only working on a map of a limited area in the East Coast. Over 12 different sessions of this game, you will expand the map and change the rules so that Depending on how you play, you will uh, change that game, how the game that you are playing at your table plays forever. That game is now different from how other people are playing it. Uh, and then you expand the map and you add pieces and there are secret components that you can't look at until you play a certain number of games. It's great. And Ticket to Ride in and of itself is a fantastic game. This is uh, moving that into the hobby space where you play through your 12 games, and the great part about it is at the end of those 12 games, you have a version of the game that you can then just continue to play. That's your version of Ticket to Ride Legacy from there. And that's an innovation from a lot of earlier Legacy games where you would play the sequence, and then when you were done, you're done. You don't play that game again. This one actually looks to be a long-term hobby creation. With it being so long-term, what would you say like the average play time would be to get to those 12? The individual games play from like 20 to 90 minutes. That's one of the amazing parts about Ticket to Ride. And that's why all of the, the whole Ticket to Ride family of games are very accessible. Uh, but this one qualifies as a hobby game in part because this is a pricey package. It's over $100. But when you look at it over the course of 
you're playing $10 a game for those 12 and then you get the game forever and it's your game and it's only customized for the people you've had around your table. We have a few quick mentions for hobby games. Uh, one is all about the hive mind. It's called Apiary. Yes, uh, this is a, a good game to play if you lose enough games of Daybreak. Uh, these are super intelligent bees that take over the earth uh, at some point in the future. And it's a worker placement game where they're moving out into the universe, uh, exploring planets uh, and gathering victory points. It's a Connie Vogelman design. A really sharp worker placement hobby game. The uh, the other two that I'll mention one is Mind Management, uh, which is a hidden movement game of psychic espionage based on the uh, comic book graphic novel series, uh, and that's designed by Jake Cormier and uh, Sen Fun Lim. Hidden movement games are a challenge. They take a lot of concentration, a lot of focus at the table, but this would this is a really good one. Uh, and the other one is Snapship Tactics, which takes snapships are these uh, airplanes and spaceships that, that are sort of Lego like you can build them with these components. Uh, and this is a customizable skirmish miniatures rule set for those customizable ships. So it takes the toys and you get to have battles with them. So speaking of toys, we're going to go to kids games and we're going to go fishing for your top pick. Yes, there's a new edition I, I mentioned, you know, acquires a, a new version of a classic game. Hey, That's My Fish is not as as old a game. It's only 20 years old and it's been around in a couple of editions. But the new edition from Next Move improves the play components. And at its base, it is a great game for two to four players, eight and up. You control a penguin, you can move in a straight line across these ice flows collecting fish. But as you move across the ice, you remove the ice you've crossed. So it changes the game and it's really actually an abstract strategy game because you're then manipulating the board to try and corner the other player's penguins so they can't move. Uh, that that makes it a little cutthroat uh, as, a, as a kid's game. But it's a really clever design. You're, you're basically, you're trying to gather up the most fish. That's the goal for the game. But it's got that great abstract strategy component to it that makes it a really fun kids game that parents are going to want to play too. And along the animal theme, our quick mentions for kids games are Cats and Boxes and Chicken. Yes, Cats and Boxes is a one-player game. It's actually a puzzle game where you've got a little gridded board and puzzle pieces and little cats and little boxes and you set up one of the 60 uh, puzzles for it and then you try to manipulate the pieces uh, to make it work so you get the solution. That's a really great little game uh, and it works for kids all the way to adults as a puzzle game. Uh, and Chicken is a press your luck dice game where you are trying to collect chickens and avoid rolling too many foxes if you Press your luck too far on the dice and get too many foxes, your turn's over. So this next category is great because it's two-player games. So what's your top pick for a game night with a friend? The game Sky Team is, I think, going to go down as a, a long-term classic as a two-player game. Luc Raymond uh, designed this game where you and your uh, the other person you're playing with, it's a co-op game where you're trying to land an airplane 
at various airports around the world. So it's got different scenarios you can play. It's essentially played in two phases. There's a communication phase where you talk about what you're hoping to do. And then there's a dice rolling and dice placement phase where you really can't talk to the other person you're playing with. And so you're trying to place these dice that you've rolled on the control panel for the plane to control the axis, the tilt axis, and the speed and all of the other things and not move so fast that you run into the other planes that may be in your way, but you can't talk while you're doing it. So, so it's actually, it's really a tense game. Uh, a, a lot of fun. It plays over like 15 minutes. So it's really tense, but you're not suffering that for two hours. It's you play, oh, we, we didn't land where we were supposed to this time. Let's try this again. And uh, it's just a, a great design and just a novel approach to two-player games. Now for the quick mentions of two-player games. Yes, there's uh, an abstract strategy game, uh, Kowali, which is a uh, moving stacks of stones and you're trying to trying to line up four of your color in a row. It's a more classic abstract strategy game and that's for kids eight and up. So that's an, another one that actually doubles as a kind of a family game, kids game. Uh, and the other one is uh, Till the Last Gasp by Will Heinmarch and, and Alex Roberts. That's for 14 and up. It's, it's actually more of a hobby game. It's a two-player dual game where you're you know having a duel against the other player using cards and dice but it leans very heavily into a role-playing game component so why your character is doing what you're doing and what the backstory between your characters are are things that you develop based on role-playing game prompts so it's that clever mix of different mechanics for games as we mentioned, one of your trends is all about the educational content, and your top pick for 2023, as far as games go, falls into this category. What's it called? It does. The top pick for this year is Votes for Women, designed by Tori Brown, and the game itself has just world-class educational content. The idea for the game is the players are either trying to pass or oppose the 19th Amendment to get women to vote. And it's essentially a card-based war game. And the person trying to, uh, to forward the suffrage movement has two goals, to get the amendment passed through Congress, which requires a certain amount of, of effort, but they've also got to pay attention to the individual states because once the amendment is passed, they have to get 36 of the then 48 states to ratify it. And the way that happens is through event cards and different things that draw very heavily upon historical content. So like a game we covered a couple of years ago, Watergate, uh, the two-player game, the cards and all of the content for this game are steeped in this historical material. There is not a way to play this game without learning something, <laughs> which is great. And even better, in and of itself, it's a fantastic card-based war game. It's been compared to the classic Twilight Struggle, which is a Cold War card-based war game, and it's a justified comparison. Well, I feel like with all the games, either you're going to learn something or learn something about yourself. <laughs> it's true. Or the people that you, the, the people that you're sitting around the table with 
Like, I don't ever want to play diplomacy with these people again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, there's plenty of suggestions for people to get started and kind of feel it out here. And uh, Jim, I want to thank you so much for working on this list and for coming back to share more games to gift. Well, as always, thank you very much for having me. James Lauder is a freelance game designer and editor, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski for our annual Games to Gift conversation. At wuwm.com, you can find their full conversation and our past Games to Gift segments. Milwaukee has walked back its plans to stop picking up real Christmas trees after the holidays. The Department of Public Works initially wanted to have people bring trees to drop-off sites, but after backlash from common council members, they announced that won't happen, and are instead trying to figure out how they want to properly dispose of them. Live Christmas trees can present a challenge for some at the end of the season, but it also offers a lot of opportunities. Venus Williams from Alice's Garden joins me to share her tips on how to make the most of your Christmas tree. If you've used a real-life Christmas tree, there's always this question about what you should do with it after the holidays. How do we make the best use of these trees? I am the person to answer that question. I have a live tree every year and have done so for at least the past 25 years. And it is always a pleasure for me to recycle and reuse my tree. Now, my reuse starts a little non-traditionally. I'll talk about some traditional and familiar ways. But for myself, as a person who has an herbal and natural-based product line, Most of my tree goes into olive oils and coconut oils, those pine needles, all of those evergreens are so good for your skin and for your body. So I will take the needles and the branches off of my tree. I have large Nescos, those things that we're used to seeing at church functions or that a caterer uses. I will put the branches and the needles, especially into these large Nescos with olive oil and sunflower oil and all these different recipes. And they will brew on the lowest setting for about a month. And I create the creamiest hair and body products. So there you go. That's number one for me. Number two is something that anyone could really Use And this makes the conversation important about knowing the history of your tree and how it is sourced. Because once again, the needles of an evergreen tree are so good as a tea. So pine teas, cedar teas, all of those teas are very good to get you through the winter months. There's a reason why the evergreen can withstand the cold. It's also true for us to be able to utilize its needles for cold and cough, for congestion, and to do it preventatively. 
So if you have a real Christmas tree, you don't, you're not like me, you're not making pounds and pounds of tea, but I invite you to get a huge mason jar or jars, fill up a few of those and really drink your needles. As we look at reusing the trees, a lot of people are going to look at ways to use them in the garden. I think that's a more traditional use for them. What are some ways we can utilize different parts of the tree for our gardens? One of the things that I used to do was I would undecorate my tree, keep it in the stand, and put it out where my other small pine trees are, and it would still be very useful for wildlife. The tree doesn't have to be alive for birds um, who are still here during the season to take over it. So I would put it outside, hang bird feeders to attract certain birds, and then watch my tree evolve into a bird sanctuary. Very often spring would come and I would see that even though this tree is not alive, I would find a nest or signs that other critters have utilized this tree throughout the winter. So there is that. The most popular way to reuse your tree is to use it as mulch. So a lot of people take their tree, take the branches off, cut the branches off and mulch their gardens, mulch around the base of your other trees or perennials. And again, it just creates a little warmer protection and bed for all that life, all that growth that is still going on within the soil. And of course, you can also take the trunks and the branches and create compost and wood chips. The compost is really important because pine needles are full of nutrients that really enhance the pH of your soil, um, especially if it's more alkaline. So the pine needles are gonna help your soil to breathe a bit more than that. The other thing, depending upon where you live, a lot of trees are used in rivers as fish feeders. So when you drop a tree into the water, it becomes a real life source and a thriving space for fish. So the weight of the tree, you know, the tree is going to anchor itself down um, at the bottom. And as time passes, algae starts to form on the tree, which feeds the fish and also protects them from predators. But of course, you have to check with your local officials to see if there is a nearby lake or pond that you can drop your tree into. So don't say, Miss Venus said I can put my tree in this lake or river or pond, but it's really a great way to reuse your tree. The other way for a garden is ash. So if you are one, um, cause I do use my wood sometimes outside, but if you have burned your tree, you can also use it to mix the ashes in with any other compost that you have. The ashes are also very good in keeping harmful insects away. So ash is another great use of your tree for your garden. We have definitely utilized ash before in our garden spaces. And, and part of that part of this conversation 
is the use of these trees in our fireplaces, in outdoor fire pits. What is your advice for reutilizing a Christmas tree in a fire? The first thing I want to say is that evergreens are really extremely heavy in sap. And so the sap from an evergreen tree is also quite um, flammable. If you're going to use the firewood inside, I always recommend that you make sure it has dried. So four to six months just to be safe before you use that wood in an indoor fireplace. And an outdoor fireplace, you can use it a little sooner because it's much safer to be out there. The sap in the indoor fireplace could really build up. So it's not that it's gonna be extremely harmful when you burn it the first time, but over several burns, if you're using, if you had a big tree and you're using a lot of wood, that sap is gonna build up within your fireplace and it could pose a threat. Evergreens burn hot and fast. We've all seen those commercials, right? Those warning commercials from local fire stations. So they, they're perfect for a great outdoor bonfire. That is a very good use for them. I also should say with the branches and back in the garden, you could also save those longer branches, the trunk, and they become these beautiful ways to decorate your garden or your garden plot. You can do so many different things with a a bigger branch. You could also reuse some of the sturdier branches as poles for your runner beans or your snap peas or any of your trailing flowers. So it really becomes what you really want to do in your garden. And it's kind of nice when it is July and you walk out to your garden and you see something left over from December. It makes me feel good. And it also helps me to know that I am not contributing to landfills. Can you tell I've done a whole lot with recycling a tree? Oh, for sure. Uh, But some great ideas to really reuse one of the things that makes the holiday season uh, so festive. Right. And it's a huge investment. You know, um, fresh trees are not inexpensive. And it also allows you to, to let the tree keep on giving. Well, Venus, as always, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me and blessed winter to you all. I'm the happiest Christmas tree. Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. We spoke about tree recycling in 2021. Next Tuesday, Venus will join us once again to explore the first fruits of Kwanzaa. Coming up, we'll learn how to make a viral sandwich with a local favorite. We're headed to Gloriosos for Grinders, next on Lake Effect, on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Wait and see, I'll be laughing happily with a ho, 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 hee, hee. This is Lake Effect. On 89.7 WUWM, I'm Joy Powers. Last year, the recipe for Italian grinder sandwiches went viral on TikTok. In fact, it was the most searched recipe on Google in Milwaukee, according to Google Trends.
Customers at Glorioso's Italian market have ordered grinders for more than 70 years. But General Manager Michael Glorioso says locals have other names for the sandwich. WUWM's Eddie Morales visited the market on Brady Street to talk with Glorioso about the sandwich and its many variations. Can you just tell me about what a grinder sandwich is? Well, sure. According to the definition, a grinder uh, sandwich is a submarine sandwich uh, that is especially popular in New England. Today, uh, really any kind of hot or cold sandwich sandwich is also often called a grinder um, if it's served on a grinder roll. And uh, that uh, sandwiches can take uh, many different names depending on where you are in the country and even regionally and citywide. Those uh, names would include things like Hero, Hoagie, Torpedo, Wedge, Zep, or Deli Sandwich, uh, Sub Sandwich, Submarine Sandwich, all those things really in the, uh, here in the country, depending on where you are, uh, are the same thing. Uh, uh, unless you go to New England where it's something a little bit more specific. Because there are different names for these sandwiches and people call them different things but they are the same sandwich, can you talk a little bit about what insight you gain into a person when they come in here and they ask for a certain type of sandwich but it's not necessarily something that's on the menu? Sure. Um, we ha- it happens to us all the time. We'll have a customer, maybe it'll be our first time in the Gloriosos. They'll walk up to our deli and uh, look to order a sandwich and they'll go, hey, what kind of grinders you have? And some of the uh, deli staff don't even know what they're talking about. What do you mean a grinder? What's that? And they'll go, you know, and then they'll describe it. And then our, our, our staff will go, oh, you mean uh, one of our signature deli sandwiches or something? Uh, and they go, yeah. And uh, what's interesting is when people say that, having been a- around uh, for a little bit of time here, um, I'm able to kind of figure out where they're from. If they say uh, grinder, I know they're from New England East Coast. If they say hoagie, they might be from New Jersey. If they say a bomber or something, they're probably from Racine or Kenosha. And so uh, it's interesting that you can peg people for where they're originally from by how they order the same sandwich, but what name they use. So it's uh, it's fun. And uh, once again, it's something that we try to educate our people on. When people ask for this, this is what they're talking about. They're just from somewhere else. If someone were to come in here and say, hey, can I get an Italian grinder sandwich? What would go into making that? From what I know defines the grinder is the hard, long uh, roll, the hard crust uh, with the soft, pillowy inside. So that long roll, whether it be plain or seated, is kind of the definition. What goes in it and whether it's cold or toasted is debatable, uh, once again, uh, regionally. But in our sandwiches, you order a large or a regular. Uh, You then choose uh, the meats. Uh, that you want. You choose the cheese and any additional toppings and we make it your way. We do, however, uh, have our own proprietary uh, sandwiches uh, that we post, which are our most popular. We call them our signature sandwiches and those include things like the Felici Special. Felici was my grandfather's name and probably 50, 60 years ago we developed that sandwich uh, and that includes things like Genoa Salami, Mortadella, Capicola, provolone, uh, and then you get it with or without balsamic vinegar. And then if you want, you can add anything else you want to it. We also have uh, grinder sandwiches uh, for those people who uh, may uh, have a slant towards being a vegetarian where there is no meat. Uh, Those also are very popular and they have things such as uh, roasted eggplant, artichokes, provolone, mild or hot uh, 
olive-based mufalata along with that. Um, we have all sorts of other options of hot and cold sandwiches, paninis and all that, but when it comes to that more specific grinder sandwich, uh, those are certainly our most popular ones. And with all those variations of the ingredients, one thing that is very important in that is, like you mentioned, the bread. Can you the just bread. speak to that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, bread is important, and here at Glorioso's Italian Market, we have been utilizing uh, Shortino's Bakery, which is right on the corner from our uh, store here, for the past, I believe, uh, 74 years. Uh, we've been, they've been baking our bread fresh every day, and it's a, uh, either a short and or a long grinder roll uh, with uh, uh, seeded on the top. And the other key to it is that that roll is double baked. And the first baking, uh, just they flash bake it, and then they bake it one more time, and that gives it a crispy uh, outside and a, a soft inside. The importance of having a soft inside where the bread uh, is that the bread needs to absorb all of the oils and things that when you add things like giardinera or muffal muffalata, they're based in oil, uh, olive oil, and that bread kind of absorbs it. Or if we put balsamic vinegar on there or just a sprinkle of olive oil, if, you're, if your bread's too dense or too hard, it just runs out and makes a big mess. So the bread on the inside needs to be soft on our sandwiches to help give that uh, full experience of and flavors that it's going to absorb uh, from all the condiments that we put on. What are your thoughts about you know a recipe like this going viral on TikTok? Um, decades of Gloriosos doing this. Like, what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's pretty cool that things that we've been doing for 70 years um, all become all of a sudden become a little bit more popular and or fashionable. Um, I think that you know the uh, growth of the sub sandwich shops, whether it be the Subways or the Cousins locally and so many others that are in the business, um, as they have learned that Italian is probably the most popular avenue to pursue. Um, and they've introduced through their advertising efforts on national TV, &E, uh, things like mortadella and capicola and prosciutto, whereas before it was ham, turkey, chicken, um, salami as a, ge a generic a term for whatever they were putting on. Uh, so uh, I think it's awesome that a new generation of sandwich eaters has been exposed to so many new things that have been around for a long time. And that's certainly been a, a boom for us in our business. Uh, we've been doing it for a long time. Michael, thank you so much for meeting with me here at Glorioso's and taking the time to talk to me today about Italian grinder sandwiches. You're very welcome. Michael Glorioso is the general manager of Glorioso's Italian Market. He spoke with WUWM's Eddie Morales earlier this year. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. There are two Milwaukee natives competing on the TV show Lego Masters. We'll talk with them tomorrow on Lake Effect. Plus, we'll explore the city through a new guide from historian John Gerda. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.